0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me and it's a pleasure and honor to be here. So my my objective, uh, hopefully today, uh, is to convince you that yeah, it is possible for, in the world of software, it is possible for anyone to compete and actually become a leader. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to motivate you a little bit about what the software, what, what the problem that can be solved is and how it can be solved and, and how it is possible for someone to become a leader. And I'm going to take you through a few examples, including WSO2, just to give you some idea of some, some companies that are challenging the traditional structure of the software industry. And, and, and the opportunities and the challenges along with that. And at the end, I have a few uh, bits of advice for people on, on how to go about this and what kind of concrete actions people should take if you if you really want to go out and, and challenge the world. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so let me start off with motivating the, the problem a little bit. Uh, 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 the problem, uh, uh, in some sense, is not a problem, but the feature is that software is eating the world. There was an article... That this guy called Mark Andreessen wrote in 2011 to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's a if you haven't read this, it's really worth digging it up and reading it. It's an essay about how software is going to be becoming the dominant the characteristic or the dominant driver of everything in 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 life as we go along. And that was written in 2011. You know, at the time, obviously compared to now, the level of impact of software was very different. Uh, but it has come alive in the last few years and and uh, so let me kind of just go through a few examples just to point out how much this has happened uh, just take a few uh, industries so if you look at automotive there's the traditional car companies and then there is the sort of the new generation technology led car companies more and more a vehicle is just a computer on wheels right it's it's a it's a a, a new vehicle has on the order of 20,000 controllers in it and Yes, there's some mechanical stuff that happens, but more and more it is completely just a computer on wheels. And the people who know how to write software are not the traditional vehicle manufacturers because they used to buy software from someone else for whatever the bits of software they needed. Whereas there are other companies like Google and Apple and Uber and so forth who are much more software companies who are now bringing software onto the hardware platform and just saying, well, we'll just run that software on this this hardware platform, which happens to give me control points to control a vehicle. So that's just one one example of what's happening. And it's not just uh, vehicles like that, but really all of transport. The entire transport industry is going to get revolutionized significantly. Uh, there's already uh, autonomous ships that can, can go around all over the world. Uh, there are autonomous tra- uh, uh, trucks that are around, and so forth. Uh, traffic routing maintenance. Why, why does the human being have to get involved in maintaining a vehicle? The car knows when there's something wrong. The car can contact the service center. The car can schedule it, look at your calendar, drive itself out to the thing, get it fixed. You don't even know. You just pay some money onto your credit card or some billing mechanism. That's it. Right? So, so the, the entire architecture is changing. If you look at hotel industry, a, a, the traditional hoteliers are significantly challenged by Airbnb, which now has more hotel rooms than any uh, large hotel chain. Right, And Airbnb doesn't own any hotel rooms doesn't, doesn't own any, any inventory, nothing. It's just a mediator. And, and it still makes, obviously, a lot of money and, and works as a business and enables a lot of people to participate in that industry that you couldn't participate before. Um, healthcare is a big one. A, a, if you look at a radiologist, uh, somebody who looks at uh, x-ray images and, and detects whether something's wrong with this image, a person is trained to do that uh, by, by going through images and looking for patterns that they are trained their brain into doing and so forth. But if you compare with some piece of software like Watson that can do that, a human being can be trained with a finite number of images. Watson can be trained with every image ever taken of an X-ray that's around, right? So, so it's a it's a losing battle. The technology isn't there yet to really completely replace that manual process yet, but it's already being deployed as an assistance to the doctor. And it's only a matter of time before the technology is going to get so far ahead that you really will lose that particular speciality. There are other specialities which are not going to happen like that, but it's, it's an important uh, indication. Uh, robotic surgery is another one. Again, very, very early stages. Uh, the other picture is of a, of a robotic nurse in Japan because uh, Japan has an aging population and they they are, they are need uh, ways of taking care of the aging population. And, and nursing care is a problem because nursing care, obviously you need nursing care. And these robotic nurses are being made more and more human-like to give that feeling of human care while having no issues with, with uh, you know, hours or whatever. Legal. Um, uh, there's a lot of software that's coming up. There, there's a famous story about a, a that that uh, chatbot lawyer thing. The, the, uh, there was some, some, someone, some 19-year-old kid wrote a program that would challenge uh, the, the parking tickets, right? And he got 160,000 parking tickets overturned. Automated, basically. Normally, nobody challenges a parking ticket because it's not worth it. It's too expensive to, go, go, to uh, go through a legal process, but software can do it. The definition of crime and war is also going to change. Uh, we've already seen that so many times now, different attacks that have happened, where there's no physical attack. It's completely done in software and just virtually. And it makes it much more difficult to, to manage uh, uh, environments. Another interesting thing will happen when, when virtual reality and reality become equal. So we are not there yet. Virtual reality is clunky. It's it's not capable. But it's only a matter of time before your brain can't tell the difference between virtual reality and reality. Because the brain is just a massive signal processing engine. So if you pump in exactly the right signals, it thinks something happened. And, and that's it. So that has all kinds of impact on things like tourism. You know, people go on tourism to experience something. Well, if you can put a hat on and experience the same thing, then is it the same and how long will that take and so forth. So there's a lot of impact. We don't know uh, how that will work out. Uh, the last example I'm going to use is this brain integration. This is a, the one on the left, top left, is a project at MIT called Oral Link. Uh, this is a grad student who's doing this project. Uh, this thing that he's wearing is a gadget that he manufactured, he, he fabricated which, uh, you know, when, when we read something, we are we are reading out the letters or the words into the brain, right? So there's a transmission a signal transmission from your eyes to the brain. This thing traps that signal. And so when you think the, the spelling, it can hear that spelling in the brain. And then it only recognizes like 10, 15 words right now. But it, 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 this is Bluetooth connected to the phone. So you can think what is the current time and it'll talk through Bluetooth to the phone and there's a tiny speaker next to the ear which will say what the current time is. Right? And they have another interesting demo where this guy is in a, in a supermarket and he's putting things into his card. As he puts things into the card, he reads out the price. And this thing's continuously adding it up and tells you how much it was. Right? So, so now we're tapping into the brain directly. And this is one directional right now. That is, I can tap from the brain. And the one at the bottom is an article I just read a couple of days ago, uh, which is about an implant that's going into the spine to, uh, it's it's an electrode that receives signals from the brain and and converts it to the the uh, the, the prosthetic that's been designed, and so someone actually is able to walk out of that. Uh, so what this is showing is, is, software is really going everywhere. There's no part of the universe of our lives that software is not going to touch and integrate into, and and a uh, and and therefore what what that what the point there is, this is not something you cannot be part of right and and if you're not part of the software revolution you are kind of out of the world in the future because the entire future is dependent on this software and everything is going be, in life is going to be tied to software so now let's look at a slightly different aspect of this which is where is the software coming from and who manufactures all the software that we use today so i'm going to go through some boring software so what do you what do you use for software so I'm going to bet most people use a bunch of this stuff that's on this slide, right? People use some kind of an email platform. Uh, Microsoft Office is widely used. Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Adobe, some kind of an operating system, uh, Android, Firefox, blah, 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 right? iOS, all of this stuff. This is kind of like you know a, a normal person's uh, software products. The bottom list is enterprise stuff. And there's a whole lot of enterprise stuff. I'm not listing it out. But if you look at this, where is it all coming from? All of that software is coming from the U.S. And and if software is going to be so important going forward, it is not really a... a, a, For every country, software becomes a foundational element that you have to be part of in some fashion. And yet, we don't compete in the software industry because everything is coming from one place for the most part. But it's not everything. So there are a few examples. Uh, There's Kaspersky, which is a Russian... Uh, antivirus software, which is very widely used, generally considered equally as good as anything else. Atlassian is an Australian uh, company which produces uh, uh, software engineering tools. Very, very good, used very widely. Um, now it's a U.S. public company. And then Zendesk is an Indian company that produces office, uh, sort of office software. Again, very good and widely used. And WS2 is actually based from Sri Lanka. Uh, I put a dotted line to the U.S. because we're actually a U.S. legal entity even though we operate uh, and the company is basically Sri Lankan, but still uh, it's, it's a U.S. entity. <coughs> so why, why do people use, quote-unquote, foreign software? Why is it that local software is not getting any traction? Uh, it's because, simple, uh, nobody wants you know, anything but the best piece of software. And U.S. Has been, has been really good at producing the best piece of software over and over again in all kinds of different areas. And, and the problem of localization, which was a, a real problem for a very long time, say, how do I translate? IBM, for example, used to have a people translating documentation to like 20, 30 different languages. And I remember when we started WC2, one of the questions, uh, I was asked once was, how in the world are you going to translate all the documentation? Right. And at the time, my answer was, I don't know. We'll figure it out later when we, when we have that problem, because we didn't have that problem at the time. But now this problem's gone, right? It's automatic translation. Uh, a, a, the, there are there are issues with that yet, but it's getting to a point where a, actually, has signed legal contracts with automatic translation. Right? It is that good now, um, and and so the problem of localization of making it work in local context is not really a, a problem anymore. It's now solved for the most part. Right? And it works even for a language like Sinhalese, which is a tiny language spoken only in Sri Lanka by 20 million people in the world. That's it. Even for that, it's really, really good. So that means even for a language that with such a small sample space of data, the systems are getting really good. And over time, this is going to be a disappearing problem. The other part is if the software is really good, you don't need any support. You don't need someone to help you out. The software is self-describing, self-working. You give an iPad to a kid, you don't need to give them a training manual or a training. They immediately know how to use it. They just manually figure it out. And, and really good software has that characteristic you don't need training and education and so forth. it just works um, often a way to compete will say, "Well we have a cheaper solution. the local one is cheaper or whatever something else cheaper but uh, when majority of the software is free, which is the case with most of the stuff that I listed, everything from Facebook to gmail and so forth is free uh, you can't cheaper is not better than free it's free already you can't go free cheaper than free uh, and even, even if you're to buy something, it's really cheap. If you want to set up an e-commerce site, you go to Shopify, and 29.99, you can have a pretty powerful e-commerce site up and running. And you can have it up and running in a few hours and sell your stuff online. Right? Uh, so it's an it's a entirely different level of, of uh, availability now. So, so that's why there is no room for saying, well, it's local, therefore it's good enough. I want to support local, I want to use it. That, that story doesn't work. Also, software, by definition, is, is is a global product. Unlike many other products which require some kind of physical presence or physical delivery or physical installation, especially with cloud, everything in software is a global product. I just go to a URL, sign up, use it, I'm done. Right? It, and, and it used to be that we sell things by information asymmetry. That is, the seller would know more than the buyer, and you control the conversation and you feed them the right information to make them buy. But a, a more and more, um, because of the internet, the buyer knows more than the seller, right? Because the buyer can get information from multiple people who bought, multiple people who had experiences, and it's all publicly available, and they gather the information, and by the time you talk to the person that you're trying to buy it from, you already know everything you need to know. So selling process is no longer an information discovery process. It's already gone past that. And, and, and because of the internet and the way we people buy, sign up to things, you don't need physical presence. You can sell to anybody anywhere in the world. Right uh, and, and, and protecting something that is local uh, as well, you know we want to encourage local manufacturing of software so we should use this thing it doesn't work unless you have a very large ecosystem that you can do that with. So China is an exception to that rule, obviously. China has a lot of local stuff. We, you know China is a much more closed environment, and, and they're large, so they can, they can get away with that, and most countries cannot get away with that simply because the market is too small to justify that. So really, there are no barriers for entry for anyone to enter any market. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people start technology companies with this idea of, oh, we're going to build something for the region in some kind. Maybe it's the Middle Eastern region from here. In Sri Lanka, it's always the South Asian region, like that. But again, why? How, how do you compete? You know, why is it that if it's good enough for somebody in this region, it's not good enough for somebody else? Right? Or if somebody else finds it good enough somewhere else, they're going to find it good enough here too. So it's a, it's, that concept is meaningless. So, so my point is, to, to uh, if you're going to play in the world of software, you can't think in a small scale. You can't think locally. You can't think uh, protection. You can't think any of those things because it doesn't work. If you're going to build software, you have to aim for the top and hit the top. Right? And, and it is possible. And I'm going to give you a few examples now to kind of give you some examples of Sri Lankan companies that are doing reasonably well and have done, done this with, with very little resources uh, simply because of the reality of how software is built. So, let me take you through four examples, the fourth one being WC2 a little bit. Uh, This is a company that was uh, started a a few years ago. Uh, It's a drawing tool. Creately is a a diagramming tool, basically. uh, If you want to do some kind of a a network diagram or a flow chart or some kind of diagram, there's a whole bunch. of. It's a bit like a Visio online kind of thing. Uh, They have 2.6 million users in, in 190 countries, uh, doing really well, made completely in Sri Lanka, a team of 20 people, that's it. No, no direct sales, everything is just sign up on the web and use. Right? And just completely self-funded, uh, raised $300,000, but running on their own. Um, <clears throat> and it's registered in Australia partly because uh, part of the money came from some Australian government uh, uh, seed funding program, and the other part was because this guy who started it was a student in Australia at the time, and so he started it in Australia originally. Uh, this one is really interesting, 4-Axis Solutions. This is a company started by four students who, uh, who were who were third-year students in, in a four-year engineering program. Uh, they get 10,000 downloads a day right now. This is the number one app uh, for this casual drawing market space. Uh, it's called Drawing Desk. Uh, and they have 16 million downloads so far. And they're growing extremely fast, completely profitable from the beginning. They're going to hit more than a million dollars revenue this year. So now, just imagine the revenue opportunity, right? And so much of potential, and they are building the. the what amazes me about these guys is these are young kids. First of all, they're like in their you know late twenties now. Their their vision is to build a complete platform that is going to go and compete with Adobe. Right. So, so not not just drawing just drawing one picture and stopping at that, but integrating that to uh, uh, printing to all kinds of stuff. Entire platform vision they're developing and building that out and scaling it to a massive scale. <clears throat> uh, this company was registered in Singapore. I'll, I'll get into why a little bit later. Uh, the next one is a hardware company. Actually. It's kind of interesting. It's a hardware company with the hardware programmed in software, uh, which is kind of how you do a lot of hardware these days. And a, a, it was started as a way to promote electronic product development by uh, this guy who was a professor in, in the electronics department of Motor University. And the objective was to say, we keep creating these graduates, but we don't, we don't have electronic manufacturing, electronic design uh, capacity in Sri Lanka. So they wanted, he started a company. And they've, they've created a DPI engine, a deep packet inspection engine, which can be used to do traffic shaping. It can do uh, firewall, like filtering, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so, for example, if you, if you want to control how much bandwidth you allocate for people to browse to YouTube or Facebook, uh, with their product, you can very easily convert, control that and monitor and so forth. Uh, and, and no funding, thirty engineers, and they are selling globally now. They're selling to uh, operators, so running at about thirty gigabits per second capacity, uh, they can run in their hardware. And the interesting thing is they don't actually make the hardware; they design it and they send the design to China, get it printed there as a board, and the board comes back. They stick it on a on a standard Dell server. And have a bunch of software, so because hardware manufacturing is is kind of down to printing now, so there's no real value in saying, "Oh, I can solder the wires and I can put the chip in." Yeah, you can have the capacity for it, but if you if you don't have the capacity, you can just get it printed off somewhere else. And it really, doesn't that's not the cost part. The cost part is the design. And the cost part is the overall framework. <laughs> uh, finally, let me talk a little bit about WSO2, uh, just to give some context. So. Uh, we started the company in uh, 2005. We're an enterprise middleware company. That means we build, build middleware that helps large companies integrate applications and build new things for the company. Uh, this is stuff like enterprise service bus, API management, identity management, analytics, those kind of things. Workflow, uh, long-running programs, uh, uh, all kinds of application server, that kind of stuff. Uh, we have about 500 enterprise customers now in, in about 40 different countries. Uh, most of the employees are in Sri Lanka. Uh, and it's not, uh, so I, I'm the founder of the company. I moved back to Sri Lanka in 2001. I started the company in 2005. Uh, uh, so the product, it's not just the product development either. It's all of the marketing, a lot of the sales, uh, all the operations, everything is done from Sri Lanka. Right? So my, my kind of mental model is we outsource to the US whatever we can't do from Sri Lanka. It's the usual reverse of, of how it's thought about. Uh, we are growing reasonably well. We bought a $40 million business by end of this year and growing at about 50% year-on-year and cash flow positive. So we are ahead of most of the competitors in our world uh, in terms of um, there are people who are growing faster, but they're losing a lot of money. So as an overall net numbers, we're doing really well in the company. So let me just kind of take you through sort of, you know, what it was like to start up and how it grew and, and what happened. Uh, so before starting up, so... So I, I used to work in IBM Research. I worked on creating most of the web service standards. I'm a co-author of a bunch of those standards. Uh, so through that, I, had, I gained deep knowledge in that space. So th- this is one point i want to make throughout this. A lot of tech companies, people think that tech companies are always started only by somebody who just finished college or didn't finish university and just jumps up and start a company and then becomes the next Facebook, right? Uh, if it becomes great, awesome, fantastic. But most don't work like that. Most of them require people who have in-depth knowledge, a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, and then you build up on top of that. Right? Most of the companies I talked about are actually like that. Uh, then, uh, when I returned in Sri Lanka two thousand three, 2001, it, there was a, at the time, there was a lot of battle versus sort of free and open source software versus proprietary software. Uh, globally, there was a big battle going on. Microsoft was very anti-open source at the time, uh, and so forth. And so I, we started this foundation in Sri Lanka called the Lanka Software Foundation. And the mission of the foundation was, look, there are people who are talking about don't use proprietary software, use open source software. For me, it wasn't really compelling because you're just saying, okay, don't buy the product from this guy. But that guy who's giving you the product is okay. Take that one and use it. And if you, if you don't have the money to pay for it, that's fine. Use that, no problem. And if you want to pay for it, that's fine. But to me, the real value comes from creating software, not from consuming it. Whether you consume something which is proprietary or open source, really it doesn't matter. Right? So a lot of people get upset that your open source guy is talking using a Mac. Right? A Mac is like the most closed platform there is under the sun. But it's also the most productive platform for many things that you do on a computer these days. Right? So does it really matter whether you use that one if you're producing something, some creating something, versus just being a consumer? So, so LSF was formed with the idea of encouraging open source software creation, not consumption. We don't care if you use it or not, but if, if you if you want to create stuff from the country, from people that are uh, with a brand value. And so we've done a bunch of stuff. Uh, uh, I was also teaching at the university at the time, so I got I used to do student projects in our final year, there's a project. I used most of those guys to do various projects. They formed various Apache things. So there's Apache Sandesh, Apache Kandula, Apache neethi Apache Rampadisa. Uh, Sandesh, Kandula, and neethi are Sanskrit or Sinhalese words uh, that we gave to the projects that we started. Um, and also, the, those students became pool of recruits when the company was uh, being started. So LSF created a, a, a whole bunch of web services related projects in Apache. Uh, we started this thing called Apache Access 2, which is which became the number one Middleware platform for Java web services. Uh, we, after the tsunami in two thousand and four, we created something called Sahana, which is a disaster management, which is a disaster management platform, which is the world's wide, most widely used disaster management platform now, and so forth. So we did a bunch of things, specifically identifying problems for which we had some specialized knowledge. Disaster management was interesting because it was an opportunistic specialized knowledge. Right? Nobody expected. We've never had any kind of tsunami-like disaster in Sri Lanka. We are not a, in any of these major disaster belts, but a, after that happened. Uh, actually, UN guys were running the country for like a day. Five percent of Sri Lanka's population was homeless the next morning. Forty thousand people died. So, and and there, there was like the whole UN disaster response team came and they were running everything. And their software was a Fox Pro-based system. If you're old enough, you know what Fox Pro is. If you're not old enough, you don't want to know what Fox Pro is. It's a pre-SQL database, basically. Right? And IBM had some Lotus Notes based system, but it was just a bunch of hacks. Because there's no money in writing software for managing disasters. Because when there's a disaster, everybody wants it. When there's no disaster, nobody wants to invest into protecting against a disaster. Disaster, right? That's the way human nature works. Uh, so we got together and we built a bunch of software immediately, uh, and and then developed it over the years. There's now a separate foundation called the Sahana Software Foundation, which is a U.S. foundation which is managing that project and taking it forward. Uh, my point is, for for particular problems, if you get a small group of people who are passionate and are caring and know that problem, you can have amazing impact on solving those problems. Right? And that's what we were able to do through this. Uh, anyway, so coming back to what we to do, we, to grow the business, So we, had, we, we, were, we set out saying we're going to compete with IBM and Oracle. Right? And those are the leaders, market leaders at the time, IBM, Oracle, TIBCO, and so forth. Uh, and so how do you compete with IBM, Oracle, TIBCO from a startup in Sri Lanka? So one strategy of that was open source. So all the software we ever built has always been open source. So that meant if you build a better product and we give it all the way free, then we'll have some chance of more people using it. That was one of the reasons why we did open source uh, I'm also very passionate about open source and being involved, so that was really no choice but open source for me but but that was a key marketing approach for us and then, how do you get people to be aware of this? Uh, so we used to do what what's now called content marketing back then, which is writing content, educating people saying so here's how you do something with this pro you have this kind of problem. Here's how we solved it with this technology. And wrote a whole bunch of stuff. And because of that, every single customer WC2 has has come through the web. We have not sold software to a single person. They came to us and they bought from it from us. Right? That includes Fidelity, which runs... Uh, uh, if you have a 401k in the US or if you're part of any of their workplace solutions, everything in Fidelity there goes through WC2. Uh, if you buy anything on eBay, it goes through WC2. If you take a tube in London, you're using WC2 software somewhere. If you send a package through uh, London, through UK or Switzerland, you in using 2 A whole bunch of places, we're middleware, so nobody knows we're there. It's underneath. But every one of these guys, Dubai police uses WSO2 actually, every one of these guys came to WSO2 through the website. And then we, of course, sell to them and help them uh, support, uh, help them do whatever they want to do. So that was done basically by this brand building process. So the way the brand building is done is simply by writing content over and over again and getting people to be aware of it. And then, of course, through the analyst channels and all the full marketing spectrum of technology marketing. I've right, done all of that. Uh, and so we had about 25 different Gartner and Forrester reports over the years, and, and we are generally recognized as a leader in a bunch of those areas. Um, and and when it came to raising money, it was never easy for WC to raise money, primarily because, like, uh, what, you're in Sri Lanka? Where the hell is that? Right? Nobody knew Sri Lanka from a software product manufacturing point of view. In 2005, uh, 2006 was when I first raised institutional money. Uh, we, uh, uh, the first few presentations I made, they were like, has anybody ever invested in a company in Sri Lanka? And the answer was no. Uh, Any VC, technology VC? And the answer is no. So I'm like, well, okay, so when are you moving back? So if you move back, we'll invest. I'm like, I'm not moving back. I moved back to Sri Lanka, you know, four years ago. I'm not moving back. And that was a precondition. So, so about half the VCs immediately would say no because you don't live in California. Right? There was Silicon Valley meant Silicon Valley. But, uh, but luckily we found a few uh, over the years. Uh, I, I tell people I have personally pitched WC to about 125 different VCs. We only managed to get four to say yes. Right? Uh, all the others would either say no or say nothing. Uh, And because that's the general mindset about the way that system works. Uh, uh, But uh, anyway, we went through that whole process, but we made it through uh, in that process. Uh, But looking ahead, if you are a technology company, there's no resting because technology doesn't stop. Uh, Every day somebody wakes up and comes up with a new idea and there are no barriers to entry. So you're always on a race. Uh, It's it's a complete rat race. And if you don't like that, you shouldn't be in technology business because that's what it takes. A, so now we are creating a brand new programming language as kind of the next long-term direction for how this entire space is going to evolve. Uh, and that's designed to be the replacement for Java, Python, and so forth for a variety of use cases on a long-term basis, on a 10 to 20-year basis. It's going to take some time. Uh, but we're thinking long-term body. But we are growing the businesses 50% year on year. And there's a lot of opportunity and there's no problem keep doing that for open-endedly. Okay, so let me kind of take a step back and say what's common about these uh, companies in terms of challenging and going after the market. The first thing is very, very deep passion about the problem that we're trying to solve. There's a lot of interest in saying, we want to solve this problem, we want to be the best in how we solve this problem across the world. Not regional, not local. Never uh, did any of these companies start with the mindset of selling to local market. Right? It was always started with saying, we are going to go after the best in the market and if some kid somewhere else come up, can come up with an idea that's best in the world why can't I come up with an idea that's best in the world right? ideas are not geographically partitioned by any means uh, and and with the internet every bit of information available to anyone is available to anyone globally now uh, so there's no reason why you can't you can't challenge and, and that's very important we we didn't none of these companies entered the market to be a you know player in the market but to win the market. Now, you don't, it takes a long time. WC is not going to threaten IBM Oracle for a long time. Usually it takes about 20 years for a software company to become a billion-dollar business, uh, billion-dollar revenue company. It's, it's a long, slow process. And that's for a company that grows really well. Uh, uh, so so it's, not, it's not easy stuff to get there, but, uh, but it is possible. And, and, and the impo- other important point is there has to be a belief in the people, in the company, that we are not playing for second place and that we are not second class. Right. This is a big problem in, in, in my part of the world. I don't know this part of the world as well. But certainly in my part of the world, in Sri Lanka and South Asia, uh, we have a long history of kind of uh, being given second-class work. And fighting that mindset is quite a challenge. And you have to fight the mindset. You have to get up and say, there's no reason to be second-class. I mean, I have the same brain that everybody else has. same computer, I have the same internet connection. What's the difference? Right. It's your creativity, your passion, your determination. It's the only difference. And the other important thing is this, uh, the, this young founder business. Only one of them was actually started by young, those the, the four axis guys, right? Uh, it's an entirely different space. The other ones are more enterprise market. Enterprise market is much more uh, challenging products, but much more high value. You know, we, we, sell a half, uh, we have sold a half a million dollar sale over the phone from Sri Lanka to enterprise customers, right? A half a million dollars a year revenue sale. Uh, a, a very different selling price point. I think our average sale is at least fifty thousand dollars starting point. We don't usually we don't go below that. Uh, so it's it's an entirely different kind of market space. Okay, let me let me talk a little bit about entrepreneurs and what it takes for people, in my opinion, to become an entrepreneur and to be an entrepreneur and to live the life of an entrepreneur. As that's that's really, if you want to challenge the world, eventually these are the people who have to do it. So when you, I have a very simple definition of an entrepreneur. Uh, It comes from uh, problems in life. Life is full of problems, right? Every day you wake up, you walk out, you look on TV, anywhere there's problems. So we have three options when you see a problem. One is we can complain, which certainly is a very common human response immediately, right? Oh my God, look at those guys, they're terrible, right? The second one is uh, you get tired of complaining after a while and you start ignoring it. You see the room is dirty when you walk in or there's some dirt on the ground. The first day you notice it, second day you notice it, third day you don't notice it. Your brain says, "Ah, that's nice, let it go. So you start ignoring it. And the third one is you say, well, that's not good enough. I'm going to try to do something about it. So to me, entrepreneurs are the people who, when they see a problem, see it as an opportunity to do something. Instead of an opportunity to complain or to ignore it, which is the, the instant human reaction is just do one of those two things. And some people get bothered by things. Right? And the people who get bothered enough by things say, I want to do something about this because I'm so damn bothered by it. I can't sleep. Right? I can't do anything. I'm bothered by it. And that's the key. So to get to that point, uh, you have to learn to see problems. Uh, there's a lot of people who are you know, very happy because they don't see problems. In a way, that's a nice way to live because everything's cool, right? No problems. But then, th- then you won't improve things because everything's cool. There's no problems. Uh, so so to, uh, to learn to see problems also requires paying attention to certain things. First thing is when problems affect you, you should take note of it instead of getting upset about it or ignoring it. right? When some problem affects you, you should say, okay, that was a problem. Now, uh, what can you do about it? So you, st- you start noting problems from experience, basically. The other one is you can observe other people going through problems and say, well, that's a problem. What can we do about that? But that's a problem. right? Instead of ignoring that, again, you start noticing it. There's the- then there's a unique breed of people who can see that there's something coming along, and because of that, there's going to be this problem in the future. And they start working on that problem even before the problem has arisen. Right? That, that's awesome, not everybody can do that. If you can predict that far ahead, then, then you're gonna be a fantastic entrepreneur because then often you can create value and be ready when the problem hits the market. Right? That's not easy, but some people can do it. Uh, so the other part is, you see problems, now you have to find a way to solve it. right? To, be, uh, to find a way to solve it, you have to, first of all, sort of suspend disbelief. Uh, Steve Jobs had this, uh, there was this thing said about Steve Jobs that he had the ability to create a reality distortion field. Right? The, the idea is that, uh, the, 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 what, what that meant was, if you're around Steve Jobs, you start believing that things that are not realistic are realistic. He distorts reality because he was such an empowering force on the conversation, on, on the people around him. And that makes people push the boundaries on things that you don't normally accept as possible. Uh, part of that is vision. Is that so? To me, vision basically means you should be able to close your eyes and imagine a situation that doesn't exist and see it in in crystal clear detail, right? And and if you can see that, then that means you can envision something that doesn't exist yet. And the next part is okay. Can you see how to get there? And and you have to then start telling that story. That's what being a visionary means. Telling that story, saying, in order to get to that imaginary place, here's how we need to go. And then getting other people to follow you. That's what leadership means, right? Getting other people to follow you, to go down that path. And if you, uh, and if you can do those things, then you have the ingredients in order to pull off something that is difficult. Because difficult things are difficult. People don't, it doesn't come naturally. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes drive and, and so forth. And then finally, you have to do something about, some, about it. And to me, this is where education comes, and, and often higher education for complicated problems. Uh, even, even those four kids that I, I mentioned to you, the, the four axis guys, eh, eh, they, have, uh, they have such incredible depth of understanding about graphics and how to program the metal library in, in Apple and, and all kinds of stuff about in-depth understanding of how graphics can be made to work better then everybody else who's written applications in those same libraries. Right? That's why they're getting 10,000 downloads a day on that application. Right? So there's in-depth understanding. So, so uh, uh, to, to be able to solve a problem, you might have a vision for how this problem can go away, but to actually build something, you need the tools, you need the knowledge. And that requires education. It requires time and patience and education. Often it, there, there's a saying that it takes 10 years for somebody to become an expert in something. Right, because it takes 10,000 hours and nobody can pre- commit more than 1,000 hours per year. So it takes 10 years. It's kind of the rule of thumb for somebody to become an expert. That's if they keep working on the same problem for 10 years. Right, a lot of people don't do that. but uh, So it takes time. Uh, and it's not it's not just about education or it's not even, even about education. So there are people who haven't had formal education who, who do fantastic work and right, who learn stuff by themselves. Uh, the most important thing to me is don't ever stop learning because everything changes on us, right? The knowledge, the rate of acquisition of knowledge is increasing exponentially every single day, uh, simply because of the ability of technology, the the rate of then new technology being used to create new, more new technology. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really fast rate at which we are innovating everything. Uh, uh, let me just give a simple example of, of, you know, Elon Musk is famous for a bunch of things, but one of them is SpaceX and the rocket that lands back vertically. Uh, uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, we didn't have any, there was no iPad, there was no internet, there was not even TV. One of the games we would do to keep yourself busy was take a broomstick and and balance it on your finger and see how long somebody can keep it balanced by moving a hand around, right? That's the same principle of landing a rocket on the straight thing, right? It's basically moving the forces around, compensating fast enough to gravity, pulling you down to the other side, compensating to the other direction. That's the same fundamental principle, except that now... With the uh, uh, And Elon Musk, who, by the way, was, was in the PhD program at Stanford in physics or theoretical physics or something like that. So the guy knows this stuff inside out. So he understands the science of it. He understands the physics of it. And then he understands how to use uh, mechanical power and, and other techniques to balance this thing and develops the technology for doing that. Obviously, it's not just him, but he is the CTO of all his companies, by the way. Right? Or, or SpaceX, or Boring Company. Of Tesla, he's the technical, the chief technical officer, right? He's a he's a scientist at heart. Uh, so, and that doesn't come from waking up some one day and figuring out something. I know there's a, um, I think Abu Dhabi is deploying a Hyperloop, right, between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, or there's some, I don't know, there's a new story at least. Uh, Hyperloop. When he first published the Hyperloop stuff, he wrote a seventy-five page research paper on how that works, and it's available online. You can read it, and it's an in-depth, thorough paper. It's not it's not some marketing gobbledygook stuff, right? That's that's him. So it's it's real. The education is absolutely critical. To to solve hard problems, you need to have hard knowledge. There's no shortcut. One thing that is not key, however, is age. A lot of people get confused about this. That that, uh, uh, and I know I don't know about here, but uh, I see so many places running all these ideation workshops and all this nonsense. As far as I'm concerned. About getting people to think about problems and identify problems to solve—that's uh, not entrepreneurship for me. Entrepreneurship basically means you must have a problem that you care about. I can't sit here and lie down on the ground and ideate a problem, right? which is one of the nonsense techniques that people use. Uh, and 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 all of those are really trying to replicate Mark Zuckerberg and 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 the people of that nature. That's silly as far as I'm concerned. That's silly. They will pop up by themselves. The people the people who are Incredibly unique at that level are incredibly unique at that level, and they will pop up in various environments and hopefully the environment that they live in doesn 't shoot them down. That is the beauty of the u s innovation architecture uh, that it doesn 't kill somebody even if they 're twenty one years old or nineteen years old has a brilliant idea. other people listen seriously right in in most parts of the world they're like oh, come on you 're a kid what the heck do you know right? and you shut it down and that doesn't that doesn 't happen there so to me a, a To solve hard problems, it takes two things. One is knowledge and experience. The second one is being young and foolish. Not age-wise young and foolish, but more entrepreneurial young and foolish. Which is, you don't take I've been there, done that, I've seen that, it cannot be done as an answer. Uh, You don't take a, you know, when you get older, what happens is we've had experiences in in our life, so over time you become more and more narrow-minded because, like, well, you know, we did that once, it didn't work, so it's not going to work. But a, a iPad is another example. iPod is an example. Uh, Apple, in fact, actually created a long time ago something called the uh, Newton, which was a, a very old uh, and early version of an iPod. Uh, wrong time, wrong, wrong technology, didn't go anywhere in the market, it died, but they invented the same concept, right? And uh, Steve Jobs reinvented that with much better foundation uh, you know, so many years later, and it, it obviously took off like crazy. A. so young and foolish is very important so your entrepreneurial age has nothing to do with how long you've lived right i'm just giving you one simple example this is my father actually uh, he got a he did a research project in sri lanka using something called spirulina which is a high protein algae and and he got this uh, he got a two million rupee award from the national science Foundation at the age of 80 for that right and, and they got an award for uh, this is a recognition of having done it done it well so, so, so the age is not the point right it's the entrepreneurial age that is the point Okay, let me uh, uh, let me go ahead a little bit to uh, uh, change gears a bit now. I've given you all kinds of preaching. I'm going to preach you a little bit more about uh, what things I think people can do and should do to create an atmosphere that allows you to compete in the world and, and take anybody on. So first thing is entrepreneurs. So, so there are a lot of people who are entrepreneurs who uh, who keep making excuses about what cannot be done. There's no funding. There's no... There's no people. There's no facilities. There's no whatever. Uh, if you are an entrepreneur, you can't make excuses. Right? Then, then you can't. That's the way entrepreneurship works. Uh, problems are abundant when you try to go do something that hasn't been done before, and problems are everywhere. Everyone else will tell you, "No, it cannot be done." If you believe it, you got to keep hacking at it and keep going. The other part is thinking big. If you're going to play in the software industry, the point of my first part about local software doesn't win was to convince you that there is no such thing called I can sell my software to the local market and be successful. That concept doesn't exist. You have to sell globally. That means you need to make a product better than everybody else's product out there, whatever the thing you're trying to do. And it's not impossible. It is absolutely possible. You just have to do it. <clears throat> so you have to think about global domination not uh, and, and being a market leader, not being somebody who just sells to the 10 friends you have who, who will buy it because you made it, right? which is not good enough if you're going to be competitive in the world. The other part is you can't build a, a hardcore technology companies by yourself, and and software is a creative industry, right? People who write good software are artists. They they take ideas and render it into code. Um, and if you want someone to be really passionate about their work, you can't just say bring your mind and body to work. You'd also bring your heart to work, right? That's what passion means. If if you you have to find a way to get people to want to solve these problems and really feel the pain inside and then fight hard against those problems. As part of that, you have to say, well, okay, they are part of this team, right? So they need to make them part of the company. So so shareholding is very important. So in ws 2 every single employee is a shareholder of the company. Uh, Almost 30% of the company is owned by all employees. And that's a very important part in my view. If you're going to make an entrepreneurial company that is going to challenge the world, you cannot do it yourself. You cannot do it with a bunch of managers uh, getting compensated, the other people just getting a salary and going home. Right? Because you, you don't stop thinking about these problems. That's what it takes to solve these kind of problems. So to consumers, it's very simple. A, uh, nobody should should buy second-class stuff, right? You keep demanding, and you shouldn't buy something because it's made local. That's not good enough. It should always be, I want the best, and if it's not the best, I'm not going to buy it. Make it better, right? otherwise don't touch it and push people to say, you can do better than this, and, and, and take advantage of something and do it better. Uh, uh, enterprises, so, so one of the biggest challenges when you're a startup company is finding the first customer, because if you don't find the first customer, there is no second customer. There's no second customer, you're dead, right? So uh, this guy, Prakash was CTO of Trimble at the time. Uh, the company the company was at Road, then bot, got bought out by Trimble. He's now the CTO of Trimble. Uh, um, and they, he was the first buyer of our ESP product, right? And after that, we sold to KPMG, then went to eBay. So if he didn't buy that, we would have had a much harder time selling to KPMG because KPMG was like, who else is using it? Can I talk to them? Uh, and that was a critical requirement, right? So if you are in a, in a company, give a small creative organization an opportunity. This is something really beautiful about the U.S. technology buying market. Right. Fidelity, actually eBay, let me go back to eBay. eBay bought WS2 and replaced their entire uh, routing platform with W2 in 2007. And we would have been 30 people or 40 people working in Sri Lanka and a company with like less than half million dollars revenue. Right? And eBay was doing 4 billion transactions a day through that software. That's a huge risk they took. And and they somehow said, no problem, we will we'll work with it. Right. That's that you have to do. The system has to support innovators, and not just say, well, you know, show me your profit record for the last 10 years, uh, show me your, you know, list of 500 top customers and all this nonsense. Just, just for your information, WSITO still cannot bid for a single do- a Sri Lanka government contract as a lead because we don't qualify for any of their requirements, which is utterly ridiculous. We run, you know, 7 trillion transactions a year for all over the world, but we are not good enough to sell directly to the Sri Lanka government. We have to go with somebody else who's going to be bigger who covers for us, right? That's crazy procurement rules. So that you have to fight that all the time. Uh, investors also, same kind of problem. So a lot of investors focus on this, you know, 20-something people. Uh, great, just, you know, write some code and show up and get some little bit of money and get going. But uh, if you want big problems to be solved, you need to invest big money with people who are going to be paid a lot more, right? I, I was 38 when I started wso 2 and I didn't. I was, I was working for IBM Research. I was work, living in Sri Lanka with, my, with a U.S. salary. And I wasn't going to quit and work for nothing, right? Because I had expenses. I had a family. So you need to get proper investment. We raised $625,000 to start the company. And, and that was raised on, a, on an open office slide deck. There was no code. There were no people, nothing. It was just idea on a slide deck with three people. And we raised $625,000, right? So the people who invested were real angels. They said we trust these guys. They might, you know, hopefully they'll do something and not ruin the money. That's how it works. Uh, government can do a lot, actually. I think, and I, I tweaked what I was going to say uh, for a UAE government because it's otherwise it's kind of boring. Uh, so one thing is the, I mentioned about where are these companies are registered, right? Most of them are not registered in Sri Lanka. wc was first registered in Sri Lanka, but when we started raising money, it became impossible very quickly to raise money from Sri Lanka because through a legal entity in Sri Lanka, because nobody knew or trusted the legal framework. right? Because if somebody puts money, they have to know that somebody can't run away with it. If they run away with it, they have grounds to sue. All these protections are not stable. Uh, so we had to register in the U.S. in order to get past it. There was no way we would have made it otherwise. Uh, then some other companies register, 4 registers in Singapore because they can't do online payments through PayPal without that. Uh, PayPal doesn't operate in Sri Lanka. That's not a Sri Lankan thing. They just can't be bothered. So what can you do? Uh, a, a, and, and in Singapore, everything's online. 15 minutes, you have a company up and running. Uh, I think UAE has very strict regulations. I, I don't know. I think the free zones, it's a bit better in terms of how you can start a company. But this is critical. If you want startups to occur, you have to create an environment where a company can come and go quickly and without too much hassle, right? Uh, by the way, even in Sri Lanka right now, if you want to shut down a company, you have to pay them 60,000 rupees or something. So if you're bankrupt and you want to shut down the company, you have to pay them money how in the world are you supposed to come pay the money to pay the government to shut down the company? So it's not very useful. Uh, incubators. Chile has a really nice model. There's some called the uh, uh, the Chile uh, Startup Chile, which is an incubator where anybody in the world can submit a proposal to them. If they accept it, they give you like $40,000 and a visa for one year or six months, I can't remember. Uh, and you go there and they have an incubator facility. They bring all these people together and you can work with the team and and kind of work on your project, basically, right? And they support it. Uh, Canada has something similar. They don't work on it program directly. Uh, if, if one of these listed Canadian investors invest, they give you a visa to come in. Uh, the thing is, eh, 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 what, what's going on in the world, in my view, is 500 years ago, when, when the European countries took over, uh, the Asian and other countries, uh, uh, they took over mostly for raw material, right? Originally it was for the spices, then for you know producing something and taking it back and so forth. Today's raw material is, is much more simple. It's intellectual capacity. That's it. Right? There's no other raw material you need now because everything is driven out of intellectual capacity. Uh, and, and the way that system works now is grad school. Uh, in Sri Lanka, of all these top universities, we lose 75% of the engineering graduates to grad schools in the U.S. Uh, within the first five years. Mostly in the U.S. Some in the U.K., some in Australia, but mostly in the U.S. And they never come back. Right? These are the best brains of the country, people who've done incredibly well, uh, funded uh, education, completely funded, free of charge by by the people, and they're gone, and they never come back. Uh, uh, so, so, uh, and and at an individual level, that's great, and you cannot stop that. I'm not arg- arguing you should stop that because at an individual level, everybody should do what's best for themselves first, and, and you can't say, "Well, I'm not going to go to grad school in the U.S. because it's better for the country if I don't go." That's an nonsense argument. Uh, but uh, there is an opportunity where there are uh, places where a lot of people in the world don't have the option to get funding and the right environment so creating an incubator that facilitates that can actually be a way to bring as a magnet from people from all over the world in this location <coughs> uh, government can also play a first customer role a, 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 you know being a first customer is again a survival obviously a survival requirement for a company if you don't get a customer you're dead So, somebody has to take the risk, right? So, even if it's not government, government can find a way to support a local company's products being used. So, change the procurement rules, there's a bunch of things you can do to improve that. Um, Experiment, so this, this, uh, with new technology, the legal complications of new technology being deployed in practice is quite high. And if you have drone technology, for example, if you're in India and you have a drone startup, it's very difficult to get a license to experiment. Because there's a lot of security concerns, right? So, so there, there is an opportunity to create areas which are specifically zoned for experimental behavior and give them much more freedom with regards to labor rules, with regards to security rules, and it's a bi-directional thing, right? But, but it also becomes, and an again, a way to bring people from all over the world who don't have access to that facility, right? and to encourage them to to come there and do it, because then. And and you register the company there. You provide them funding, so you become the whole supporting architecture, right? Uh, and the last point related to government is a lot of the high tech stuff that we need to do now requires really high end equipment, which is not affordable for any startup. So having common facilities, the the, the sort of the popular name for this is now a maker lab, uh, which can go from the simple stuff of like you know just having equipment for grinding stuff to planing wood to whatever all the way up to having an electron microscope available. So if somebody wants to do some project, rent the, rent the equipment to them. Right? So facilitate more creative work by giving the equipment that, that uh, they cannot get to otherwise. All right, I realize I'm running out of time. Uh, so let me uh, summarize a little bit and conclude. So the first thing is to me, uh, you know, the Middle East, uh, you know, Sri Lanka has had a, had a trading relationship with the Middle East for, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 years. Uh, Arab traders used to come to that part of the world and buy things and go back and forth. That's in our history all over the place. Uh, So it's a historical trading architecture, but trading is going away very, very fast, simply because you don't need any middle-level training, middlemen to do trading anymore, because technology is getting to a point where you'll have go from manufacturer, the custom manufacturer, to the consumer directly. And it's just all mediated through software, and that's it. Uh, And the other part is being a market for everybody else to sell your stuff is not a good long-term strategy, right? Everyone, so this annoys me a lot. Even in Sri Lanka, we see an article saying, uh, let me pick on VMware now, Uh, VMware sets up office in Sri Lanka. And the business press talks about it like, oh, this is awesome, VMware setting up office. But that's nonsense, because why did WCW set up an office in Brazil? It's not to go and help Brazil. It's because we know we can sell more software by having an office in Brazil, right? And, And that's, you know, that's the way the world works. That's fine, I'm not, anti-trade by any means, not Donald Trump, Uh, but but you have to create something so you can also go and do the same thing in somebody else's country. But if you're only consuming, it doesn't work. You have to go from trading and consuming to creating so you can push it out as well. And software, to me, the opportunity around software is so huge and so real because it is really possible for anybody to compete. If you have the capacity, if you have people with intellectual commitment and the raw material, and the raw materials are everywhere. In any country, you take a million people, there are 10 people who are fantastic out of that, who can compete with anybody in the world, right? whether there's Elon Musk or whatever. Facilitate those people to drive a lot of stuff. So you don't need a lot of people. If Sri Lanka can do it, we're a tiny country, right? Economically, we're tiny, $80 billion GDP completely uh, for the whole country. Uh, and, and, a, and what you need is a mindset and an approach that says we can challenge everybody. And it's not something that you, uh, uh, that, that you can't do. Another key thing is a, a, a failure has to become celebrated as part of this. Uh, when I was raising money for WC, one of the first questions that people would ask me is, have you started another company before? I was like, uh, no. If I started a company, what would I be doing here? Uh, and and, and their the expectation was, well, you started a company and it failed, and you're doing it again. And if you failed once, it's good. That's the mindset. Because you failed it once, so maybe you won't throw up another ten million dollars if we give you ten million dollars. Is kind of the mindset. Right? Versus, oh, you've never done this before. Oh, ah, okay. If I give you ten million, you might mess it up, right? So, so that's the opposite of failure is a problem. Failure is is rewarded actually in that architecture, and it's with good reason, right? When you've done something wrong, you learn, right? Failure is the best teacher in many ways. <clears throat> so, creating an environment that uh, encourages. Uh, the risk taking and and fosters that is very very important and one before my last slide so so uh, software is also an interesting problem because software is an international drug now we all depend on it we need software nobody can run anything without software and the way the world works unfortunately, there is politics and if you are not on the good list of somebody or on the bad list of somebody else right so, so it's it's a, it's a problem that means if you're depending on software. A, a, it'll be a major issue. And I have a concrete story from Sri Lanka. We had a terrorist war for 30 years. We had a lot of problems. It took a long time to sort that out. Uh, when finally the, the government and these terrorist groups started into major war, we couldn't buy weapons. We don't make any weapons either. We had to buy them from somewhere. And most countries were like, well, no, if you want to buy this weapon, here's a set of conditions, political conditions. And we're paying full price for it, but still you can't just get it. Right? And eventually, a few countries help. That's why we were able to finish it off. And we don't have anything going off uh, in Sri Lanka anymore uh, for the last nearly 10 years now because of all that. And that's great. Uh, but if you're dependent on software, somebody can just turn the switch off and then you can't use it anymore. Right? Especially cloud services becomes even more difficult. Yeah. So it is an important independence thing to think about, saying you have to have independence. You cannot assume everything is going to be dory going forward. Uh, finally, this is not just only about software. So there's programming software in the current form of silicon and soon in electron form with quantum computing. But there's the, the two other things that are remaining which are now becoming more and more prevalent, which is uh, programming genes, which is coming with CRISPR and, and a whole bunch of things about how you go and create, sort of mess around with life in some sense. And the other one is programming at the atomic level, and at the nano level, and nanotechnology. Uh, so these once all three of these things get together, is when the future is going to go into some crazy path. Uh, and, and you see interesting projects coming out that are doing these things already. And and so you can't... So not having a role in that in a 100-year, in a 200-year time frame is basically putting yourself into a corner that you'll never get out of. So it's very important to have some role in that. And that's my last slide. This is a quote from Steve Jobs that I love. And, and the gist of it is that when you do something... People always want to plan ahead and say, I'm going to do this and this thing will happen, then this thing will happen and so forth. But in reality, you can't do that. You can only connect the dots looking backwards, not forwards. You plant a bunch of seeds, you don't know where it's going to go, and when you look back, you can say, oh, I did that, I did this, that's how I got here. But when you did those, you didn't know that path is going to lead there. So you have to have some instinct, some gut, and you do a bunch of stuff, and then you see where it goes. All right, thank you very much.